Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In our last session, we learned that the book of Romans was written as a letter of teaching and encouragement by the Apostle Paul to a church group he'd never met in Rome. Paul knew that there was some disunity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians there, and that the Jewish believers really wanted the Gentiles to accept Jewish practices in order to please God and be accepted by Christ. But Paul emphasized that we are not saved by our careful observance of the law of Moses, but rather by our trust in Jesus Christ and in his sacrificial work on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and he alone is able to free us and reconcile us to God the Father. Paul also stressed that the Old Testament scriptures had long revealed this righteousness that comes from God, because even they declared that the righteous shall live by faith. And the faith that makes us righteous is faith in the person of Jesus Christ and the remedy for sin that he himself has provided. We also saw that Paul was not ashamed to boldly declare the gospel of Christ because it alone has the power to save all people regardless of their background. As we now pick up in the text of Romans 1 in verse 18, Paul begins to explain why we need the salvation God so freely offers and he begins with some strong words about wrath, wickedness and excuses. He states that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men or people are without excuse. Although Paul spoke of God's wrath, did you notice that he never spoke of God as being angry with people? Instead, he says God's wrath is directed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and against their suppression or denial of the truth. But what does that really mean? What is the truth that they've suppressed or denied and how have they done that? Well, Paul begins by saying in verse 19 that the truth is something that all men can know. In fact, God has revealed much about his nature in creation itself. People in every culture and in every stage of history have instinctively worshipped something that they've seen in nature, something that they can recognize as being other than themselves and that they have no control over. In the created world, they have seen a higher being to whom they owe fear and respect, if not obedience and love. So this is what Paul means here. God's invisible qualities are clearly seen in the created world. Not only that, but creation reveals there is an order to the universe. There is a set of rules by which things operate. For instance, 
If you ignore the law of gravity, see how quickly you fall. Set out to sea without taking the winds and the tides into consideration and see how far you get, how long you stay afloat. Plant your garden but never water it or pull a weed and see how much fruit you will harvest. We all have learned from the world around us that there is a physical order to the universe that we ignore at our own loss or peril. There is also a moral order built into the universe as well. God made that moral order known through his dealings with Israel and through his messengers, the prophets. Living according to God's moral order results in peace and blessing, but ignoring it results in certain opposite outcomes, outcomes that Paul begins to talk about in these next verses. Paul's point here is that those who reject God are really without excuse. He's made himself known through the created world and through his word. In fact, Paul reveals here that those who do not believe in God have deliberately decided to suppress or to ignore these obvious truths simply because they love their wickedness more. He explains their thought process there in verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Despite the many ways that God has revealed himself, many have chosen not to worship him. They've preferred their own belief systems centered around themselves instead of the eternal truths revealed by God. And this is true even in our supposedly sophisticated and enlightened age today. An early church document known as the Westminster Confession states that the chief end of man is to worship God and enjoy him forever. Human beings are created to worship the God who has created them and who loves them. However, when people refuse to even acknowledge him, much less give him his rightful place, they begin to worship other things, wealth, power, progress, their own intellect and abilities, the created world itself. They live in a self-centered universe, making the object of their devotion to be what they want it to be. But all they really end up doing is exchanging the glory of the immortal God for lesser things. It's a tragic exchange, and because of the laws by which the world was made, it has some inevitable consequences. Because these people chose to be released from God's control, Paul says in verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. 
The Greek word that Paul uses here for desires actually means to reach out for pleasure. So because men wanted to be free of God, he gave them over to their own desires, allowing them to reach out and experience the forbidden pleasure that sin holds. It may seem strange to us that God would do that, but he has given mankind the free will to reject him or to accept him. You may wonder why our ability to make our own choice is so important to God. Well, if you think about it, free will has to exist for true love to be known. Think of it this way. If I capture you and chain you up in a back office and say that you cannot come out until you say that you love and respect me, what will happen? Well, eventually you may get hungry enough to say, okay, Michelle, I love you. Can I come out now? You may say that, but you won't mean it. Why? Because your free will has been taken from you. You aren't choosing to love me because you genuinely want to love me, but because you're hungry. So... For true love to be known, free will has to exist. God wants us to know his love, but we have to be free to decide whether or not we want to love him back and live life his way. And I think, truth be told, most people don't want a God who's a puppet master anyway. We don't want to be like robots who can't think for ourselves. However, when mankind chooses to have nothing to do with God, the Lord will let them have their heart's desire. He has not abandoned them, but rather they have abandoned him. And because they've chosen to ignore his truth, there will be some deadly ripple effects of what they choose. As mankind exchanges the truth of God for a lie and begins to worship and serve things other than God, there will be an escalation of sin, especially in the sexual realm. The one thing about sin we can be sure of is that the desire for it can never be fully satisfied by the practice of it. And without the presence of God in a person's life, there really is nothing to keep the evil desires of a natural heart in check. Satan is a deceiver and he seeks to convince people that throwing off God's constraints, his restrictions, his commands, somehow leads to their freedom. When in reality, the effects are really quite the opposite, for casting off God's direction will ultimately lead to shame, degradation and spiritual ruin. So what was the result of mankind's unwillingness to follow him? Paul explains in verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Paul was speaking into the culture all around them at the time, but his words are no less valid for us today. When people substitute a lie for the truth of God, when they begin to serve the creature or themselves rather than their creator, the whole order of nature is violated. 
Without a healthy respect for God, there really is nothing to hold an individual in check. And left to their own devices, there are no limits to what a heart might conceive. In this short section of text, Paul begins to describe what he saw occurring even in his day in the Roman Empire. And in case you think Paul is overreacting to the times in which he lived, it's important to realize just how restrained he was in saying the things he did. Roman historians of the time spoke of Rome far more harshly than Paul did. It seems as wealth increased so did sin and the need to find more ways to push the envelope of what was accepted. We see this link between wealth and affluence and immorality all the way back in the Old Testament in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities in the Bible were associated with terrible immorality. If I were to ask you what Sodom's sin was, most people would immediately think it was homosexuality. But interestingly, God, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16.48, reveals this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. God specifically links their pride and their wealth to their degradation into sexual sin, and the same was true in Rome at the time of Paul's writing. A Roman poet of the time wrote, I see Rome, proud Rome, perishing, the victim of her own prosperity. It was an age of luxury like never before. In the public baths of Rome, the hot and cold water ran from pure silver taps. The Roman emperor Caligula even sprinkled the floor of the huge stadium in Rome with gold dust instead of sawdust. Everything was available for purchase, but little satisfied. And so eager for new experiences, people began to test the limits of the natural order. Divorce was rampant and society from top to bottom became filled with unnatural vice. I found it surprising to learn that 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced homosexuality. All kinds of sin were rife as mankind turned from what could be known about God to satisfy their own wickedness, and God left them to act on their desires. Paul continues in verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Mankind, equipped with a conscience, knows what ought not to be done. But they saw no good purpose in listening to their consciences, and so they followed their own evil desires anyway. 
A person whose life is centered around themselves rather than God is quickly filled up with what Paul says is every kind of wickedness. The Greek word that Paul uses here implies that this wicked state of mind not only robs God of his place as rightful Lord, but also it is willing to rob other people of their rights also. Hand in hand with wickedness comes evil. And interestingly, this is a kind of evil that not only wants to destroy everything that is good, but also wants to force others into the same immoralities. Those who reject God greedily pursue their own interests, seeking to drag others down with them. Paul concludes his description of the person who willingly rejects God, saying that this all culminates in depravity, in other words, in immorality, which leads them even further away from God. It's easy for us to see how the Jewish believers in Rome might have thought that Paul was only addressing the Gentiles in all that he said. You see, they considered themselves very different from the Gentile believers because being Jewish, they'd come from a background of knowing about God. After all, they had the law of Moses to show them how to live. Yet, as Paul begins to speak of all Yet as Paul begins to speak of the all-encompassing nature of sin, of how it affects every aspect of life, and of how God was right to judge those who have turned their backs on him, he begins to illustrate a life of self-focus in a way that even the Jewish believers would have felt some conviction about. He continues his description in verse 29, saying, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. When anyone leaves God out of the equation, their life will inevitably be filled with these terrible things, with envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. Resenting others, they are quickly drawn to angry, vicious action. And as Jesus said himself, though a person may not literally kill another, their hateful actions are just as murderous. Their resentment and their wish to harm will lead to strife or conflict, born out of envy, ambition and the desire for self-advancement. This kind of person is willing to stoop to all kinds of underhanded tricks to get their own way, and it's all done with a malicious spirit, one that desires bad rather than good for another person. We see these kinds of people in every community and in every society, don't we? Those who are so focused on self that they are willing to do anything to elevate themselves over others. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, 
arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Their malice works its way into their everyday conversation as they gossip and slander others, deliberately killing other people's reputations. They loathe God and any mention of his name. Why? Because they know that what they are doing and the the way they are living is wrong. These proud, defiant people who have such contempt for others love to talk about their own accomplishments. They present themselves as being far better than they really are and not content with just the usual ways of sinning, they eagerly seek new ways in which to drive back the normal morals of society. It is interesting that Paul brings up disobedience to parents here in this list. Both Jews and Romans believed obedience to one's parents was very important. In fact, in Rome, a father's authority was so absolute that he even had control over the life or death of his family. I think the reason that Paul brings this up here is because what they were seeing was the dissolution of the family. And once the bonds of the family are destroyed, wholesale chaos ensues, leading people to be ever more senseless, faithless, heartless and ruthless. The word senseless in the text describes a person so foolish that they are unable to learn from experience. It is as if they can't use the brain that God has given them. There is no ability for critical thought at all. They're faithless, willing to break their word as easily as they give it. When Paul speaks of people being heartless there, he uses a Greek word, astorgos, which has its roots in another Greek word, storge, which is a word that meant family love. So people had lost their ability to connect with one another, even in the family, and this heartlessness toward one another led them to despicable acts even to killing their unwanted babies. They were ruthless. There was no mercy anymore. Even their entertainment centered around gladiators fighting one another to the death in front of the crowds. Life was cheap. Although they know God's righteous decree, Paul says, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Though they knew that everything they did was against God's commandments, they not only continued to act in the way that they did, they willingly approved of others who did likewise, and actively encouraged more and more to join them in their evil. Surely, These are hard words from Paul, and yet this was the culture of the time. This is what the decline of an empire looks like when its citizens throw off every restraint to focus only on what is good for them. We have to ask ourselves, what do we see when we look at the world around us now? Is it really any different? I have to tell you that I don't think that it is. There is a growing attack on the authority of God's word and what it teaches. People who have chosen to substitute the truth of God with a lie do not believe that God's word can speak into our society anymore. For example, 
The family as it is presented in God's word is under attack. And there are many groups today promoting the idea that the historical idea of the family that we grew up with really needs to be thrown out because it's dated and irrelevant. There is another attack on the authority of God's word though, and that is in the whole area of human sexuality, and this is an extremely dangerous attack. So let me preface what I'm going to share by affirming, first of all, that every person is precious to God. The Bible tells us that we are all created in the image of God, and that doesn't mean that we resemble him physically. Rather, it means that humanity is unique out of all of God's creations in that we can reason, we can choose, we're creative, we're relational, we're social, and in all these ways, something of God can be seen in us. When God created Adam, he breathed into him to bring him to life, and we have great value in God's sight because of that. Unlike the rest of creation, we share his breath. A part of him lives within us. And secondly, I want to affirm that we are all equal in his eyes. Though he made us with differing appearances and abilities, scripture tells us that he has fashioned all of our hearts alike. We are all equally invited to participate in his love and in his life. That said, today, a lot of pressure is being exerted on people to approve of a way of living that is not condoned by the scriptures. Young people, in particular, are not only being pressured to support the LGBTQ movement, they're being pressured to become part of it. Large groups of people the world over, want us to identify sexually as whatever we want to be. Our feelings have become the determining factor and any identity is permissible as long as it's what's good for you. Now, I think it's true to say that today in many countries, it's more celebrated to sexually identify in a non-traditional way than in a traditional one. There's increasing pressure on people to not just agree with this line of thought, but to embrace it. Acceptance and tolerance are no longer enough. There must be participation in it. To do that, though, we have to throw out the word of God and replace it with a lie, something we've just read about in Romans chapter 1. Jesus himself said in the New Testament in Matthew 19 verses 4 through 6. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? He said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus said something very similar to this in Mark chapter 10, verses 7 to 8 as well. In stating this, the Lord made it clear that there are only two different sexual identifications, 
male and female. He said that a man is to be united to his wife and that when they come together, the two actually become one flesh in the sight of God. This is what Jesus said. We certainly are free to believe differently, but to do so is to reject the very words of Christ and to live counter to the moral order that God built into the universe he gave us to inhabit. Romans 1 reminds us that there are different results that must and will be experienced depending upon what we choose. Paul has given us a dreadful illustration of what happens when people deliberately banish God from their lives and their institutions. Historically, it was only a matter of time before Rome perished. I dare say that any nation who does not learn from Rome's error will also share in their fate. Immorality and decadence go hand in hand with disaster. It's one of those foundational laws that God has set up. And whether you believe in it or not, it will not change the outcome. God has created us for glory, for happiness, for life with him. May we always choose to follow his way, no matter what the world around us says. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.